Welcome to Corner of Hunter and George from Peterborough, Ontario, Canada, episode number 52. Homelessness, by definition, are those without stable, safe, permanent housing or the immediate prospect means and abilities of acquiring it. That's an actual definition taken from some official Canadian definition somewhere. Sounds about accurate to me. Well, it's definitely taken over Peterborough as an issue, even though it's too hard for many people here to swallow. But that's not limited to Peterborough. That's prevalent all across Canada, North America, the world. It's difficult finding a voice in this issue with true intellectual insight and not just coming to simplifications on it. Well, I found one with Naomi Nichols, sociology professor at Trent, and the Tier 2 Canada Research Chair and Community Partnered Social Justice. And from this came the research for Social Change Lab, which she heads, a community-engaged research collective in pursuit of justice and equity in Nogojiwanong, Peterborough. Recent articles have pointed out issues such as criminalization of the homeless, the problem with our coordinated access and by name list, uh, the bureaucracies tied to that, and so on. Well, this is my interview with Naomi Nichols, who gives credence on this issue after years of working at both McGill and Trent. And I could spend a season on this topic easily talking to her about it. She knows that much, and the issue is that deep and wide-reaching. But, uh, and I'm sure I'll come to this issue again in the future, but here's 60 minutes of it, more or less. So I hope you enjoy this. Many, uh, there's a huge... Uh, depth that I could go to of topics, but I guess I'll just start with the research for social change lab. I guess maybe if you just explain on a one-on-one level what that is and maybe more importantly, what you are most proud that it's done so far. Um, Well, it's only existed really since somewhere into 2021, really like midway through the year, I would say. Um, so I think one of the first things I'm proud of is that the Research for Social Change Lab exists. I was a professor mm-hmm. at McGill, um, yep. until 2020. Um, and I moved in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, so yeah, it was a bit of a slow ramp up. Um, but the idea was that we would have a research lab that was accessible to community, which is why it's downtown at Trail College, um, where there were computers that would provide people with access if they wanted to university library databases, for example, uh, which are paywall protected. So the general public can't um, access uh, academic resources otherwise, um, and that we would carry out research that was um, where we designed the projects, but we designed them in response to community expressed needs. Um, And so I'm proud that we're starting to do that. I mean, a lot of the research that we do actually is funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. um, And it responds to like projects I designed while I was still at McGill and and received funding for it then. but we've started to do work that is responsive to what's going on here locally. Um, we just finished a project with funding from Reaching Home, um, which is Canada's homelessness strategy. And it ran through the United Way or the funding moved through the United Way to us to investigate the coordinated access process, which is the federally mandated mechanism that communities must use to respond to homelessness. So I'm also I guess proud of that. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, yeah. And you've 
you, you met often these involve like a lot of local organizations like the United Way and things like that. So I guess if I say that you, you feel like you're, you get voice from a lot of different angles when you do these various workshops or whatever you're doing. We get, um, engagement. So engagement. like okay. much of my day is spent writing mm-hmm. staff at, at the research for social change lab have lived experience of the problems that we're investigating. So lived experience of child welfare involvement, lived experience of homelessness. And one of them is in jail right now. And so, um, I'm one of the people she can collect call. And so she sometimes cl- calls me five times a day. Um, so that's <laughs> apologies. Yeah, yeah, so a good chunk of every day or a small piece of every day is spent just with engagement. So we we do a lot of meetings with local stakeholders, um, relationship building, outreach. And it's not just the United Way. I would say it's everyone in town that um, whose work addresses social issues that the lab is also working to provide insights into. Right, right. Yeah, well, it's, yeah, it's an open invitation from what I take they are. So, yeah. yeah, yes, it is an open invitation. So we've had, you know, we've had coffee with um, Thomas Piggott at the Peterborough Public Health, and mm-hmm. that has um, mobilized into a couple of projects with Peterborough Public Health that are pretty exciting. Um, we have, we do a lot of work with the Peterborough Drug Strategy, which I really appreciate. We work with um, Forecast and One City, I'm on the board. Uh, yeah, really everyone <laughs> it yeah. feels like we do, we engage with the city as well. Now, now one aspect is your kind of, uh, online magazine, you, where you either you or other people involved are putting out these findings that you find. And mm-hmm. the one you had out in May 30th is saying that 5% of Peterborough's, uh, uh Peterborough's by name list in 2022 got housing which mm-hmm. i don't know no, they I, didn't they didn't even get housing they got offered by oh, list housing right okay. yeah so it may not have been that the housing was suitable for their needs because a lot of our housing um, units that are connected to the by name list are for single individuals and a lot of people as you can imagine are partnered so sometimes people decline an offer because they actually need to be housed with their their significant other Okay. So pardon me if I get I'm making this kind of a one oh one thing, but okay, the by name list itself, that's a like a provincial kind of way of coordinating information, getting getting people access to various groups where they can find housing or it's it's a local each so there's a provincial piece and that the province has mandated that every municipality in Ontario has a by name list. Mm-hmm. Um and it's a list of everyone in your community community or it's meant to be a list of everyone in your community who is experiencing homelessness and then it's meant to be ranked so uh, depending on your local priorities in terms of housing supports um you that you rank the the list so that the people who the groups you've prioritized rise to the top and they are connected with more intensive usually supports okay um but what it isn't um what it doesn't always match to um, is a list, a, a similar list of resources because communities are really, um, disproportionately low on those in comparison to the, um, significant need. And that's not a Peterborough problem. That's a problem everywhere. You maybe have been following the news about recent, um, moves to aggressively criminalize homelessness in Barrie, Ontario. This is really yeah. a problem that is faced by every municipality right now because of, um, significant shortfalls in provincial government investments in uh, welfare policy, welfare programming. And I mean that broadly, like, like social welfare as a, a general set of um, aspirations rather than Ontario works, the social assistance program. Okay. Yeah. And just out of the by name list itself is, are you saying like one of its short fallings in, in more or less is kind of like this kind of like bureaucratization kind of dependency on data. But like you said, some of the people who were offered housing, it may have not fit their needs and it just, uh, I don't know. It kind of 
maybe lacks a bit of a personal touch or like yes. people's specific needs. Am I, am I onto something there? Yes. I think that's one of the things that really, um, matters in terms of its failings is that it is presented as though it might actually serve as a person centered mechanism. We get to know people by name, um, is the way it was branded, but what it actually, um, does is, uh, transform or translate a person's complex lives and life and experiences into a score. Um, so you have a name and then you have a, an assessment score, a vulnerability assessment score. And the assumption is that once we have the score, we can easily and unproblematically match people to services as though the score speaks for <laughs> the needs of the person better than the person could um give an opportunity at like articulate their own needs and desires around housing. And then it's this rationalized approach where once you get the score, you just simply match them to the appropriate services. And what we find is that that seldom actually works out exactly like that because the scores themselves are often quite misleading. Um, the assessment tools that are used are um, not unproblematic. Like academically they've been discredited and they, um, are not always administered by people who have skill in um, administering complex assessment tools like this. They're often like brand new shelter workers, for example, who are just learning the ropes, right? And then they also mm -hmm. have to administer quite a lengthy, um, not trauma-informed survey about all sorts of aspects of a person's life um, and particularly focusing on their vulnerabilities. So that takes some skill. It's also true that an assessment like that is a point in time assessment. And so, you know, maybe one day you would score it at one level and another day you would score at a different level because it's not like an objective indicator of your life forever moving forward. Um, and furthermore, the more time you spend on the streets, the more um, aspects of your life deteriorate. So again, uh, the, the scores are sort of coming out of sync often in terms of where your life is going. Um, so for all these reasons, the score that itself is often a problematic indicator of the types of housing supports a person will need. The other piece is that a lot of people need a lot of resources now, or some people do, in terms of social and health supports in order to stabilize, and we don't have that type of housing. So there was an article in the conversation yesterday about the need for like 24-7 supportive housing in Canada if we're really going to... Um, move the needle on homelessness and we have a significant lack of that type of housing here when we when a unit is um opened like a unit connected to the by name list for mm -hmm. example the person moves into it but they don't move out right it's not right. like they go there and then um you know within a year their life stabilizes and um, they move into market housing no one can move into market housing in our community because it's not actually affordable yeah exactly um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, on a macro level, I guess just how I've sort of seen it. I mean, you could make the argument that homelessness has always been somewhat a perennial and terminal issue, but this capitalist society that we have now, like intensified by the last years by our real estate booms, this, uh, this always attempted gentrification, uh, lack of public housing, these lack of uh, rental caps that have been existent since Mike Harris, really, on anything built after 1990 and all sorts of other issues. I don't know. I just. Um, there's it's uh, it's quite I like I'm quite impressed you put this research and you're just taking it right on the streets and like <laughs> and like having your feet right on the sidewalks like Trail College, I think, as we know, is not a lofty uh somewhere off in the distance kind of place anyone mm -hmm. who knows peterborough um but uh yeah i guess like do is there maybe when you started say years ago at mcgill do you look at homelessness some any different than you do uh now like i sort of think of people like my i had a grandmother who lived in the 1980s not in peterborough but somewhere close by in a apartment it was two bedrooms she worked at that time as like at a PSW kind of job, but mm -hmm. was unionized. Didn't really have to worry ever about rental increase. And she had that place for like 25 or 30 years and she was on her own. Mm -hmm. um, I just feel like those things just are not doable today. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you had a lot in there. Yeah. Um, for sure, the financialization of housing is a major driver of the problem that we have right now. There are other stressors on the system. For example, the move um, in all post-secondary institutions across Canada towards internationalization as a mechanism for, for balancing the books in the absence of sufficient provincial government funding. So again, the province is really like dramatically fallen short in terms of its cash transfers to universities and colleges. And so the ways that that all post-secondary institutions are managing that shortfall is by vastly increasing their enrollment of international students, which puts pressure on housing markets everywhere, particularly in small communities where there hasn't been a, a large influx of students um, coming from outside in the ways that we're seeing it now. So that is a stressor and there are other stressors like this. Um, but one that we don't talk enough about is the financialization of housing. And I would say, yes, it's, you know, gentrification has something to do with it, the lack of rental caps, um, the inability to transfer leases. Like one thing that's different in Montreal is that people can, and this is under threat right now, but they've historically been able to transfer leases, which allows the sitting tenant um, phenomenon to sort of kick in to make sure that the rents aren't going up astronomically as a tenant, one tenant leaves and a new tenant comes in. Um, but the other piece is the erosion of, um, retirement investments, like pension plans and things for the middle class. Um, I grew up in a time when many middle and working class families had pensions. If you worked at General mm -hmm. Motors, you had excellent benefits and pensions. And as I entered into adulthood myself, I'm 45, many of our friends, didn't have those things and it became normal not to have those things I didn't have that until I was well into my 30s and I got that job at McGill um, and so what people started to talk about was investing in um, home equity and it was a way oh well we won't have a pension but one day we'll sell our house and that will be our pension and this became a normalized way of talking about how we were all going to manage a future that felt really unknown. And I think that has accelerated the, um, you know, wild leaps in housing prices throughout the course of the pandemic in, in Peterborough and other small, smaller towns around the GTA. Um, fed like a frenzy <laughs> around um real estate investment. And so people were buying properties, flipping properties, seeking to capitalize on those who lost their jobs to buy their properties for cash. And again, make um, wild returns on their investment, the types of returns on investment that you couldn't get anywhere else. Um, and that was happening with large buildings as well as family homes. Um, and so that that's a piece of, of why we're at the, while we're in the position where we are right now, like it actually, um, given the cost of housing, given the cost of the buildings, <laughs> um, it's impossible to provide affordable housing units, given how much you'd have to pay to buy for the building itself in the current market, right? So the financialization of housing is fundamentally driving this crisis and we haven't figured out a way to address it. Simply building more units um, isn't going to be enough. That's a piece of it, again, that will address some stressors on the housing system, but it's not going to, um, our commitment to home equity, our commitment to making money through housing, um, as a society has, has to be addressed at some point. Our commitment to private property ownership as the cornerstone of our Canadian identity has to be addressed mm -hmm. at some point. We will right. never realize a right to housing if we remain so fundamentally committed to private property as, a, as an individual right and one that should be protected above all else. Okay. Is it proper for me to take of what some of you were, you were just saying there is like how you sort of view Bill 23 then? Like this commitment to building more and more houses all oh. doesn't affect Peterborough directly, but you know. Yeah, and I would say <laughs> that that was a move to pacify and encourage developers. Like, I don't think that was a move to um, enable a rights-based approach to housing. I, I think that was a move to continue 
to enable the marketization of, of housing and, and the, the capacity for a very small number of people to get really rich on housing right, <laughs> as, yes. a, as a primary source of capitalist gain. I mean, even recently I was looking at a, um, some of the stats that will be in the Housing is Fundamental report in Peterborough and comparing the household debt levels in Canada to the GDP, like our, 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 our growth. Um, it's disproportionate. We, you know, all of our, all of our money is going into housing that right. there isn't. And it looks like, um, yeah, we're, we're sort of stagnant in terms of GDP when you actually look at it that way. Yeah. Or- so it's not serving anyone, I guess, is like any of us who imagine like, oh, you know, this is my nest egg. Actually, this is just how the banks are making money on on, on your vulnerability. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I, well, yeah. And the, yeah, the problem is, too, a lot of us don't really have much of a nest egg. I don't know what the no. I was read something lately. It's a high number. It's not just like a certain, you know. 10 or 15% of our lowest economically, it's like a lot of people can't come up with a $500 or $1,000 that they were asked to right now. So Absolutely. And yeah. the amount of money you have to put down as a down payment on a house that costs a million dollars, right? Like 10% yeah. of that would prevent anyone from entering into the housing market right now. And there was a time um, during the pandemic where the houses in my neighborhood were all going for over a million dollars. Like that's bonkers that's mm-hmm. and that's like a you know 30 30 to 40 percent increase in a matter of three years mm-hmm. um now when you were earlier saying about barry which i believe if i'm yeah from what i know i, I think it's like uh you were not allowed to give any sort of uh you're not allowed to give any kind of donations or survival kits or anything yep. to anyone on public property in that city from what I was reading. Um, so that's just one example of sort of this terminal criminalization we seem to have with the homelessness. Mm-hmm. Um, is it fair to say, like, there's a lot of people who are actually in this scenario where, yeah, I either am going to be in jail, but I mm-hmm. guess I, you know, I have somewhat of a roof over my head or I'm going to be on the streets and there isn't yes. much. It's really those two extremes and not much else. Yes. Um, I once heard a, uh podcast I think with Phil Fontaine and he talked about our correction system as the only public system in Canada where there really truly is a no wrong door approach meaning you anyone is eligible the doors are open all the time there's no waiting list um and so yes we we certainly spoke with individuals in our community who are experiencing homelessness and um, there is absolutely a cycle between jails and homelessness because people come out of Lindsay the Lindsay jail and directly into homelessness um, regularly. Um, but also being homeless makes um, you more vulnerable to criminalization. In Peterborough, it's actually a bylaw violation to erect a structure anywhere. Um, so those bylaw violations lead to ticketing, which you can't pay when you're homeless, you can't pay a fine. Um, so once you accrue a bunch of those, that can lead to a bench warrant. But it's more that Things that you could do in in your house, like in private, um, if you have to do those things in public, like go to the bathroom, that's actually um, an opportunity again for um, criminalizing interactions with the with the correction system, with the justice system. Um, fights with your partner, if you're having a fight with your spouse inside, mm-hmm. um, no one hears. <laughs> if you have to have that fight in a park the police are likely to be called. And I'm not talking necessarily about a fight that leads to violence. I mean, just an argument. Um, If you're doing drugs in your house, you can do that. If you're doing drugs in a park, again, that can lead to involvement with the correction system. So by virtue of just having to live your life in public, you are so much more likely to come into contact with the criminal legal system than you are if you if you are housed, if you can do things in, in the privacy of your home, things that you and I would take for granted as being kind of normal, having sex, like all sorts of regular living types of activities that could land you in jail um, if you have to do them in public. Right. Yeah. And we somehow think that can somehow disappear if somehow, I don't know, we build a memorial mm-hmm. center downtown or something like that. Um, but anyway, now what I have no hard numbers of this, but some of my 
brief past experiences of both one city and one roof, places like that. Mm-hmm. I feel like as part, it's a Canadian issue, but this, you can either call it like a structural deprivation or like it's just a systematic racism of like our First Nations yep. related to these homelessness issues, especially with three reserves nearby in Peterborough. Yep. I don't know if you found anything of that sort. Well, one thing that struck me, and I don't remember the numbers precisely, but what the disproportionate numbers of people um, who participated in Peterborough's last point in time count, point in time homelessness count, um, who identified as having Indigenous heritage, given um, the numbers of people who live in our community who identify as having Indigenous heritage. So there was percentage wise more of those than we would expect to find. Um, And so that is a sign that um the 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 long like the threads of settler colonialism um are woven through our present day situation in terms of housing and those in our community who are vulnerable to um housing loss and i think you know we can't talk about housing loss and um, homelessness anywhere without talking about land theft and um, the dislocation of Indigenous peoples from their traditional territories ever since um, the, the beginning of the Canadian state-making project. And so that's, yeah, that's absolutely evident in terms of w- what's going on here locally. Um, and we need to name it. Um, we have a choice locally in terms of the Um, the way we do coordinated access about who we prioritize for housing. And in Toronto, for example, they have prioritized um, Indigenous peoples as one of the peoples whose needs should be met first in terms of access to housing, in part because of the the ongoing and continued legacies of um, settler colonialism. And we have not done so here. And so I think that's, you know, one thing we could do, although at this point, that's more or less a symbolic move, given how um, few people are offered housing through our by name list, but it would at least signify that we recognize um, the importance of um, connecting what we see today to this to this past that we're all implicated in. Right. Um, now, now I know most of your a lot of your work past work was in Montreal, but I wonder if you look mm-hmm. at any communities in Ontario as maybe exemplars for trying to address or even reduce homelessness. Um, you know, I, I, I noticed in Toronto's by-election that this public housing issue has come up a bit, which they haven't done since the 70s or the 80s. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah. So I actually um, have done research in Hamilton. I've done research. I was in Toronto um, as a postdoc and so did a bunch of work in Jane and Finch. Um and the work that we're doing on some of our, we have funding that comes from the um, Making the Shift uh, networks, of center, networks of Centers of Excellence um, to Prevent Youth Homelessness project. Um, and so that also has a provincial scope. So I, I do see things other places. I would say no community is like doing it in a way where I'm like that, like go, everyone go to Guelph. Guelph has it figured out. But I think there's things that different communities are doing well that um, are worth paying attention to. I think Toronto, for example, has its own um, information management system when it comes to homeless individuals and families. They're not using the federal one. And they have developed so many important mechanisms for ensuring data is accessible. It's high quality. um, It's uh, collaboratively used um that the public can know what's going on i would say here we could learn from that um the in toronto uh toronto public health collaborates with the coroner's office and with other um service providers in order to keep a fairly um high quality tally of who is dying on the streets and why and i think that's important information that we don't again have here that we're working on a project with some local uh, local agencies, Peterborough Public Health being one of them in order to enable that kind of tracking. But 
the relationship between those organizations and the city is very different in Toronto. And I think, again, Peterborough could learn something from how they're all working together. Um, but obviously, yeah. Toronto hasn't solved homelessness. Right. And I know from the work I was doing in Jane and Finch, like the erosion of public housing over time was really depressing. Um, the relationships between Toronto public housing and Toronto police services were highly problematic in terms of um, at the time police had agent of the landlord status, which meant they had access to the closed TV, the surveillance camera footage um, in all Toronto public housing. And so for um for communities who were living there, who tended to be communities who already were um, disproportionately surveilled by police, uh, that that was an unsafe situation and a and a racializing one. Um, Hamilton also has done some good things in in terms of like making um, data accessible to counselors, to the public, to service providers that I think Peterborough could learn from. Hamilton also has a long history of street youth serving organizations working together and like building ground up um, mechanisms for collaboration and coordination rather than um, simply complying with like a top down model, which communities are being asked to do now. Um, London is working towards creating a 24 uh, seven health hub from what I understand that I think could be really important. Um, because a lot of the needs people are facing, not just when they're on the streets, but people who are experiencing other forms of isolation and vulnerability um, are health needs. And uh, having 24-7 access, like drop-in health access, I think is really important for psychological health as well as for physiological health. Um, I know people who have worked in the lab and people who we have... Um, engaged in, in some of the research projects, having 24-7 access to mental health supports, even just in the someone to talk to, <laughs> would make a really big difference in terms of life stabilization. They would end up, um, I think, having more opportunities to avoid hospitalization in jail if, if, if there were just other um, low barrier community-based health supports that were available in our community, um, not to mention basic wound care and other things where when left unaddressed, they can escalate into pretty problematic health issues for people. Um, and there have been some efforts in uh, Waterloo as well, again, to like do better with data, um, to, be, um, to, to ensure it's higher quality to ensure that it's publicly accessible and also then to use that data in a much more meaningful way around planning. So I think like one of the things that is frustrating for communities is that they're feeding information into um, these information management systems and they have to do this as a, as a um, requirement of their service contracts with the municipal government. But that information is not used in ways that people can see. Um, it's not used in obvious ways to help cities plan, to help agencies better attend to needs. It's merely experienced as and frankly appears to be um, a way of tracking goods and service utilization basically like how much is it costing us um, to house homeless people in emergency shelters and that starts to feel like um, a dead end like why would I waste my time on that if that's all it's doing and so people need to be much clearer about the ways data can be used to actually evidence you know, data can be analyzed to become evidence to be used in ongoing efforts to plan. Does it make any sense to simply enumerate who's homeless and how many in the absence of enumerating how many housing units do we have? How many do we need? What what are the like having a plan around actually creating stock right now? All we do, it seems not all we do, but the disproportionate focus is on enumerating homelessness. How many people? There is much less effort going towards what is the stock we have, what is the stock we need, and what are the creative ways we can actualize those needs. That's the real work. Well, yeah. So that's kind of another example of the, yeah, this obsession with data collection. Another thing I find um, kind of frustrating about a lot of issues, but homelessness is definitely one about how Canada operates. It's kind of like, you know, a lot of these like 
responsibilities or the dirty work is dumped on the municipal government. Yes. But they don't really have, in the end, much power. The province no. likes overriding them when they want to, but wants to stay out of doing the dirty work. The federal government yes. maybe has a plan, but it doesn't really get directly involved either. So who is responsible for what becomes the issue. Mm-hmm. Have you, I don't know if you found anything similar yourself. Yeah. Yes. Oh, absolutely. So, and not only that, but the municipal governments were tasked with solving an issue they knew very little about and didn't mm-hmm. know how to solve. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were, people were given portfolios that were complex and becoming increasingly more so, like rapidly worsening portfolio. And they had no time to actually develop any knowledge in this area, um, let alone figure out what to do. And so what they did was they went to off the shelf tools. They were offered particular um, strategies like a built for zero methodology. Um, and everyone sort of went, oh, good, well, I'll just do this. But in the absence of like a, a comprehensive understanding of the problem itself, what had been done historically, what has worked in the past, what what evidence suggests we should do, um, they weren't able to mobilize those tools effectively. And I think that was an absolutely unfair position to put cities in. Um, I, like, I mean, in Peterborough, our commissioner who's responsible for homelessness is also responsible for sports and culture. Like that's a ridiculous portfolio. Mm -hmm. There's no way a person should be asked to hold all that. That's absolutely inappropriate. And again, a failure of our provincial government. They just said, this is awful. We don't want to deal with it. And they handed it down to the, to the municipalities with insufficient funding to, to address the issue and insufficient capacity to address the issue or power. Um, and you're right, the federal government has a plan, but it's not willing to hold the provinces and territories accountable for actualizing those plans. Like we've ratified the right to housing in law, but there's no mechanism in place for actually, again, holding provinces, provincial governments and territorial governments accountable for that for that piece of important human rights legislation. Yes. And they haven't tried, frankly, they haven't tried. <laughs> no. No, I, I, I to to, totally agree. Yeah, no, they haven't. No. Um, I, I'm going to apologize beforehand for this likely mispronunciation of the person's name, but you used a quote from, I believe, Christian Lou Longa, something like that. Um, but that technology is a useful servant, but a dangerous monster. I think that's kind of coming <laughs> up when we're talking about this data collection. Mm-hmm. Um, so is, is, is part of these, this ineffectiveness of, uh, besides, uh, you know, this obsession with collecting how many people are out there, but actually coming up with any solutions besides these possible, like, kind of band-aids, like, uh, I, like, uh, one community you're mentioning is Waterloo, like KW have this, like, mo- I think it's some sort of modular housing community mm-hmm. where they're not criminalizing them and they're getting 24-7 supports, but it's not yep. actual housing. No. Uh, so, I just, yeah, I just wonder if you're thinking this, this kind of blind faith in technology has kind mm. of been an erosion of our public safety net in some ways or contributed to it. Well, I think what it has eroded at a really terrible time is transparency. Um, because we don't, everyone's putting information into these, as I, I called it a machine, but like information management systems that are provincially or federally operated, but it's not always evident what is done with that information? Why? Why do I have to collect this information and not that information, nor what is done with it that improves my capacity to deliver good services or address people's needs? And I say that with quite a lot of confidence because we're looking at the move to modernize or digitize public services in child welfare as well as in homelessness uh, provincially. And there, where these systems fall short is in the creation of meaningful feedback loops that allow people who are putting all the information in to see the benefits of data collection, right? And it's not even in the case of the provincial child welfare um, information management system, CPIN, the information in the case management part of CPIN, you can't extract it and use it um, using their very limited reporting functions in order to, for example, assess the quality of your services. 
assess whether young people who are um, Francophone, for example, are getting their linguistic needs met at your organization. You can't do that kind of like very specific local analysis of the data to improve your service delivery. And I think that, again, is a, is a, um, a failure. Like, because people are spending now, people are telling us they're spending 50% of their work days feeding those machines, like mm -hmm. filling out paperwork. Mm -hmm. But if it's not translating into, into improved, more equitable services for the most vulnerable young people in our province, why are we doing it? I think, and this is like, I believe in research. I believe knowing things really matters. But if we're not going to act on the knowledge, then we're spinning our wheels. And I think um, the danger is we convince ourselves that we're doing the work where all we're doing is documenting, <laughs> right? We're not actually making progress, but it gives the sense of making progress because we're so busy. So we're working so hard that we feel like this must have some positive, this must translate to some positive benefit for children and families or for people experiencing homelessness. But I'm increasingly skeptical that that is so. And as I said, we um, academics, service providers, advocates, we don't see what's happening with the data. Like it just, put, we just put it into these machines. These, they're not machines, it's a symbol, but, um, or a metaphor, but we, we, we entered into the information management systems, but the, the information management systems themselves have not been um, created in ways that allow us to use them or to know what's done with this information even. Right, yeah, so it doesn't really end up going anywhere in some senses. Um, yeah, in some cases. And I think the other piece is that um, tools are being used increasingly uh, to make decisions. So structured decision-making is one of the concepts in child welfare, but it's the same thing in homelessness when we use a SPDAT, which is the vulnerability assessment tool, to give someone a score that is meant to help us match them to appropriate services. Um, how that all works is not known to the people who are experiencing it, right? Like mm -hmm. that is a, a less transparent exercise for um, a, someone experiencing homelessness than, than what we used to have, which seemed unfair and, and, and had its own problems, but just like a list, like you knew where you were on the list, like I'm number two and they'll get housing next week kind of thing. This mechanism for assessing people um, has, yeah, it's, um, we use the concept of a black box a lot as a metaphor, but it, it black boxes that process even further for people. So in an effort to make things more transparent, I think we've actually made things more opaque um, for those who are um, seeking to get their needs met through our public systems. And I would say having um, done some research locally on how um, this spadat is implemented, even service providers who are doing the assessment don't actually understand in some cases um, what it's meant to be assessing nor how it will be used as the coordinated access system moves forward, which again, for me is a, a problem in, in terms of its utility. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just curious, uh, definitely one thing I've, I've sadly kind of have to ask you about is uh, the police and I'll kind of mm -hmm. on a local level, what you think, what role they should be playing or any way they are, we're not using them or properly right now in Peterborough because someone I was saying if someone I think you admire, uh, Robin Maynard was recently pointing out mm -hmm. how crimes in Toronto have kind of at least 2021 and 2022 kind of decreased overall, but mm -hmm. those most vulnerable in society have faced a higher risk of violence. Yeah. Like, and on a, on a Toronto level anyway. Um, so yeah, I, it is, I, I'm just wondering what, if, if you've noticed anything from your research or anything you've sort of yep. come up of, of how we're using or misusing the police. Well, yeah. So first you're right. I love Robin Maynard's work and I have, uh, was deeply informed by her first book. Um, second, uh, interestingly, colleagues of mine at Trent University were invited to the Ontario Chiefs of Police Association meeting this past year to talk about why we can't police our way out of homelessness. And so the police recognize that they should not be involved 
in managing this problem and in the ways that they have been and they don't want to be involved in this way and they recognize that poverty acute poverty and lack of housing is not a crime um and that living in acute poverty and without a house makes you very very vulnerable to police surveillance and criminalization and that this again is a problem um so what has come up in the context of those conversations with police from across the province is actually the ways that they are um, coerced into um, administering their services or, or delivering their services for municipalities. So even though they may want to have no part in encampment clearings, um, they don't feel empowered to say no. Right. Yeah. And that was eye opening for me because I thought like, well, you're the chiefs of police of Ontario. Just say no. Like mm-hmm. you of all people could stand together. And I actually still believe this is true if the will was there. I'm going to say no to the province and to the municipalities. This is not within our, our purview and it's not helping. Like it's actually making the problem so much worse because those small stays in jail just further destabilize a person's life. They're more likely to come out of jail. And if they're um, people who use drugs, they're more likely to overdose and die. They're more likely to come out of jail. They they are um, almost guaranteed to come out of jail into homelessness again, because there there is no discharge planning um, with respect to housing. If there can be in reach into the jails, and sometimes some organizations have been able to do this on a small scale, people like Elizabeth Fry, and John Howard can do some inreach into jails to help with discharge planning that is housing led. It can happen periodically, but it's rare. Like it's not a systematic effort to ensure that people come out of jail into housing unless they're coming into halfway housing as a condition of their probation, which is a very different thing. That's not a housing led intervention. That's a surveillance led intervention. And so, um, yeah, the, the involvement of police is absolutely exacerbating the problem and making it more complicated. And I was very surprised to learn that the police did not could see this also. Yeah, so that does that is a somewhat head scratching. I'm not surprised by what you said, because I've kind of experienced that when it comes to a lot of these things you were talking about earlier, things that if they were not done in public, the police mm-hmm. definitely would have no part of it. Like, yes, right. couples swearing at each other, even yes. like uh, fist fights and some if they're done in yep. someone's home or definitely, you know, minor drug use. Uh, yep. There's they have no part and they really don't want to come to these things because no. it's, it's well, it's kind of. It's uh, it's I at the very least, it's probably very annoying work to deal with because it's just going to be something you. I know you take someone off for a bit to cool down, then you, then out they go kind of thing. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And, um, but on the other hand, they take not just in Peterborough, but everywhere they take more and more of a slice of our municipal budget. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So you, yes. And we have alternative models. We have alternative models um, that will involve uh, responses from health, like off, Often uh, people trained in conflict de-escalation, um, outreach workers, healthcare providers coming to um, calls for service. Like it would, ha- the intervention would happen at the point of the call, the call into police. So it would be, you know, some screening around: is this um, a call to report violence? Mm-hmm. Because if it isn't, we should do something else. And it would allow for a diminishment of police involvement in cases where their presence will escalate a situation into violence, which otherwise is not. And so this also requires, too, some work with the public around, like, when you should pick up the phone and just um, call for the police. Like, you know, if there's someone on your yard in your yard who looks disoriented, this is not the time to call the police. Right. And so. And so the public needs to have other ways of attending to that issue because not not everyone's going to be comfortable to go out onto the lawn and just say, hey, like, how's it going? Can I help you? Um, But if there were other emergency services that were non-carceral, non-punitive, that people had access to, that would be, this would be transformative potentially Um, because often what a person needs is like respite, is care. 
Yeah, exactly. Which we, in some ways, used to have, but we don't really have any of that anymore. I think a common Peterborough trait I think of as an example is like, it's not uncommon, even close to where I live, I kind of live on the edge of downtown, Mm -hmm. uh, is like people going around and yelling and swearing to themselves for it's a yes. mental health issue. Yeah. And, and a lot of people's instinct, yes, is calling 911. And yeah. 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 And I think, um, wherever possible, people need to consider other options first. And I think the opposite is true. We go to the police first. And the other piece, I, I guess, because there have been increased conversation about uh, public safety and the role of the police vis-a-vis public safety in Toronto, especially on public transit. Um, The police cannot prevent violence. Like that's not the response that prevents violence, right? They Mm -hmm. respond to incidents of violence, but the work to prevent violence is around building an inclusive society, right? Like mm-hmm. we know that violence increases statistically everywhere in the world where inequality increases. Mm-hmm. The way to prevent violence is to prevent the type of um, gross inequality that we're seeing now all over the place, but in Canada and in, at levels we haven't historically seen. Um, the way to prevent violence is to sh- ensure people have access to the health and mental health services that they need to be well, to ensure that people have access to um, stabilizing interventions with respect to drug use, right? To ensure that people have access to meaningful work and relationships and community and housing. Those are the things we know are going to prevent violence, but we don't invest in those things. We invest in a carceral response to a problem that we created and that we individualize as though it's the failings of those individuals. It's, it's, we don't see ourselves as implicated in the creation and sustaining of the roots of this, of, uh, of the violence that we're so afraid of. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Uh, now a lot of your work has come actually looking at specifically young people in these scenarios, mm-hmm. like those mm-hmm. like 18 to 21 or around that age. I just wonder if you found um, any sort of uh, prevalence or how big an issue you found sex trafficking to be, particularly among female. But well, what I would say is that it certainly is the um, object of interest of our provincial government, and I think there's a way that um, sex trafficking is framed as a um, perfect victim kind of problem. And and yet I would say that um, those who are at risk of sex trafficking are are young people who are at risk of homelessness, are young people who are at risk of um, substance dependence. They're young people who are at risk of um, all the negative, um, all the potentially problematic social challenges um, that the government isn't working to resolve in any meaningful way. Young people who drop out of school are more vulnerable. Young people with um, fractured relationships with their families, young people who've been involved in our child welfare system. Those are the young people who are more vulnerable to all sorts of forms of exploitation. Sex trafficking is just one. And yet we don't invest in those systems in any meaningful or sustained way. Really, I, I'm almost like shake my head. It looks like the, the provincial government right now is looking at what are the possible avenues for getting kids to leave school early? <laughs> like yeah. instead of creating st- like supportive structures that enable meaningful engagement in school and then access to affordable post-secondary, they are fundamentally eroding investments in post-secondary and trying to find create like actively create structures that allow people to leave school early all of this will undermine democracy all of this will undermine um, young people's safety and their capacities to contribute meaningfully to the in their communities and to protect themselves under conditions of exploitation sex trafficking is one i get annoyed actually with the government's interest in sex trafficking because i see it as so fundamentally connected to all sorts of other issues that it refuses to care about and and the government refuses to act on and actually actively like contributes to the erosion of young people's safety across all of these other dimensions of their life. Yes. So you're seeing it, you're saying it's kind of more of a, 
first I want to make a distinction like sex trafficking is different than sex work. So lots of people yes. engage willfully in sex work. Sex trafficking is a is a particular form of exploitation, right? Mm-hmm. Where you're you're you don't have agency in that context. And I'm not saying that only homeless young people experience vulnerability to sex trafficking and that that form of exploitation, but I'm saying the group that the the profile of young people who are um deemed vulnerable to sex trafficking are young people who've been involved in child welfare, young people who are not meaningfully engaged in schools, young people who are street involved and are homeless, young people who um, are isolated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so the government is contributing to like a, a lack of um, care and stability in families by undermining all of its social safety nets and and um it's contributing to deteriorating relationships with schools right it's contributing to all mm-hmm. of the foundational um experiences that may make a young person vulnerable to sex trafficking and then it holds up sex trafficking as its banner issue mm-hmm. like this is the one thing we care about and to me that just is it rings absolutely false it's a charade because if they cared, they would be investing in all of those systems that we know support young people to become um, self-advocates and um, connected to their communities and um, less likely to be exploited. Right. Um, yeah, I, I think you could make a good argument that a lot of what the provincial government does is kind of meant to si- silence our voices more and more. Everything mm-hmm. from what you've mentioned or to our strong mayor ideas, even though that doesn't affect you <laughs> directly, mm-hmm. things like that. Anyway, one thing, yeah, you're mentioning is child welfare. Th- those who are in child welfare or who've yep. been uh, isolated. Yeah. Do you, do you see there being a problem with our foster care system in Ontario of any sort or well, I, so child I do welfare work with, system? Yeah. I do work with child welfare and I yeah. have for a long time been one of the researchers in Canada who's, shone a light on the relationship between child welfare involvement and homelessness um, Mm -hmm. and the vastly disproportionate numbers of young people who come out of child welfare into homelessness. Um, So I do think there are problems. I think the problems, though, again, um, go beyond the child welfare system. Um, Families are really struggling. And and when families are are experiencing toxic stress, um, child welfare is more likely to be involved. And so one of the ways that we can um, allow our child welfare system to actually work to support the welfare of children would be to support families to experience more wellness and find, um, you know, ensure their basic needs are covered, ensure that they have access to resources that will help them navigate moments of stress in their lives. And I think, you know, that doesn't exist right now. And then in terms of the child welfare system, one of the things that the government is focusing on right now is something called Ready, Set, Go. And it's a strategy to support young people as they transition from the care system. But I think it is insufficiently focused on the importance of housing as young people are transitioning from the child welfare system towards adulthood. Um, And it is um, naive (laughs) insofar as... um, failing to center housing as like the cornerstone to stability in every other aspect of a young person's life. I don't know how any of our young people, frankly, are navigating this housing crisis. Like trans students um, are in really vulnerable situations, doubling, tripling up in a single room because the cost of housing is so um, crippling for them. I don't want to use that word, but like it it makes it very, very hard. Um, So a young person without a family or a, uh, yeah, without that that sort of relational safety net is is very vulnerable to housing loss as they're moving out of the care system. And I think we need to focus much more aggressively on ensuring they have their housing needs met and that they have that we have ways of helping them mitigate crises because they're not just like potentially going to encounter you know, crises, it's likely they will encounter crises as they move from adolescence into adulthood. Most young people do, you know, like losing your job or getting behind on your rent. And and for young people who have been dependent on an institution, um, they don't have a lot of other things to turn to to help them navigate those those crisis moments. I work with young people 
who are, who are adults or in their 20s who have been involved in the child welfare system in Ontario and in other provinces, and even those who would we would hold up as successes, like those who've gone on to do post-secondary, um, continue to be vulnerable to homelessness. Mm-hmm. Like, this is something we need to talk about a lot more um, in terms of thinking about the role for other institutional systems to play in addressing, in preventing homelessness, right? And preventing young people and others from experiencing um, housing instability and homelessness as they move through their lives. So yeah, child welfare is definitely an institution that has a role to play in in, um, conceiving of solutions. Right. Jails also, as I indicated, you know, that Mm -hmm. it's like ridiculous that that's not a housing-led discharge plan. Same, I would say, for child welfare and also for um, various forms of healthcare interventions. People go into the hospital and come out into homelessness. Not only does that undermine all the protective health work we do when a person is in hospital, um, to me, it also represents a failure to actualize a duty to care, right? Like health is, housing is health. It's, It's predictive of like a lack of housing is predictive of early death. So having housing-led discharges also from the hospital, I think, really matter, or or new ways of conceiving of long-term care um, for people who are economically marginalized. Right, right. Okay, well, the, finally, I guess to turn back in a full circle kind of way, um, are there any sort of specific future uh, goals you have for the near future for um, your research for Social Change Lab, like things you're running to maybe things you haven't grasped yet or haven't taken on yet. Yeah. Um, So we have spent the last uh, two years, I guess that we've been sort of up and we've only been up and running for like a year and a half. And in that Mm -hmm. time, we've been doing a ton of data collection, tons of research. And we are just starting to do what we call an academia knowledge mobilizations or sharing what we're learning with people. And Mm -hmm. so we've been doing that in ways that we're trying to be, um, uh, to forefront um, accessibility. So little books and reports that are all accessible to the public. But I also am a Canada research chair. And in order to maintain that status, I have to publish in peer reviewed sources as well. So I will say that right now, you know, this next year, one of the things we have to work on is actually like writing a bunch of academic articles and, and perhaps a book. Um, and uh then another piece that I'm really excited about moving forward is some work with Peterborough Public Health on adverse childhood experiences and the um, health work of um, what they describe as underserved families, but they're often lone parent families, um, often young living in poverty. Um, and so it's going to be another participatory project where we hire um young moms to be or, or or dads but it's often moms um to be researchers on the project and where we look at um how families are managing toxic stress in their lives and what are the resources that they would need in order to um manage those sources of toxic stress more effectively and i think that kind of work a where it's empowerment based where you're working with those most affected by the issue but b where you're looking at um the roots of all the social problems that we see I mean, it's mm-hmm. often like early life experiences and so i'm really like i get emotional about it i'm very very excited about well, this project it's well they're they're really quite i you know, like i i think it's Im- Im- impressive actually i think it's quite positive just not that i have qualifications but it's quite positive i think that you are emotional <laughs> because you can become quite n- numb and narcissistic oh yeah well not narcissistic but kind of nihilistic yes uh, yeah yes. so that's uh, i think my my issues sometimes but uh but so and i so well thank you very much for taking your time today i i think we're pretty much in an hour so that's uh yeah to fit your guidelines um yeah, I, I just I'll just mention uh I I was first really impressed with you way, way back now. Seems a long time ago now, but when we did our <laughs> you we had one of those like um politically uh kind of unsatisfying, but still we had one of those uh, municipal debates, mayoral oh, debates yes, that you proceeded yes, over yes, with. Yes, uh, for yes. whatever his name is that you had the United Way you were yeah, doing. Jim. Yes. 
Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Had to be some, uh, yes, classroom management of the candidates more than the audience, but yes. Yeah, uh, yeah, that was, I actually love doing that. Yeah. Those are some of my best memories since moving back to Peterborough because it's like this, this quintessentially small town thing that we also can organize. A very grassroots social issues debate. Um, yeah, it, that was fun. Yes. (laughs) It was, and it was eye opening. I also think like there is a potential. I spend a lot of my life with, uh, people who work in universities all over Canada Mm -hmm. and, um, I could get out of touch pretty quickly. So it's important to have, um, to have those really, uh, diverse, um, experiences to, to be in community with diverse groups of people. 